0: The Spi-off podcast network. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our like top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. In Alice Sneddon's "Bad News Saves the World," I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can okay. see the anxiety <laughs> starting to emit
1: from you. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank, the bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life, a bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business, or diversify, a bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers, it is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose, Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I want to take you to a different place in a different time. It was London, 1999. I was a country boy, Juno, more used to doing bond markets and rugby tests and whale strandings than big time corporate reporting. But here I was in London as the Reuters mergers and acquisitions reporter covering insurance and banking. And it was a real eye opener to see how the other half of one half of 1% live and what they do, how global corporate life and how the rawest, largest form of capitalism actually works. My job was to know before anyone else when a company, a particular life insurer or a general insurer or a bank was going to buy each other, and who was doing the deal, what the price would be, and who would win. So that meant starting to get to know two groups of people I'd never known before – Big fund managers and big investment bankers, these are the masters of the universe you might have heard from the Tom Wolfe book, Bonfires of the Vanity. They're a completely different beast. They're really focused on the deal, on bringing forward the profits and getting as big a share as they possibly could. They really didn't care about whether this company was going to create value in the long run or whether those hundreds and thousands of staff would be disrupted, or whether their lives would be completely different and maybe worse because of this deal. It was all about the deal. I began to think of these people as used car salespeople, but with PhDs, because they were always the brightest people in the room who worked the hardest, and who were there really to work themselves to the bone for 10 or 20 years and then get out as multi-multi-multi-millionaires. Or even better, go on to run one of the companies that they had previously owned shares in or done deals with and become multi-multi-billionaires. This was 1999, remember, and back then these were the heroes. These were the people who were running the most successful form of society. Capitalism had beaten communism. The Berlin Wall had fallen, and it was the end of history. And as I went through this process and started to get to know these people, I realised that there was something wrong here. There was something deeply sociopathic and short-termist and ultimately dangerous, in this risk-taking and this wheeler-dealering that made me uncomfortable. Luckily, I went on to do other things, and then the global financial crisis hit, and we learned, as the tide went out, how many of these companies and these banks were essentially naked. They weren't ready for the big shock. They had consumed all of the fat. There was no plan B for when something went wrong. And since 2008, and through the COVID crises and the various bailouts and chunks of money printing, a whole bunch of these masters of the universe have started to realise that maybe this short-term thinking, this profit-first, shareholder-first thinking, actually isn't going to help us in the long run, that it's going to impose costs on the future and on other generations, that there is a fundamental unfairness, a disconnect between costs and benefits. And climate change is the obvious example of that. But you could go down the track of, you know, how large uh, moneyed interests are screwing the scrum of democracy, how you're seeing uh, abuses of workers in various places. So a new movement has formed up over the last decade or so. It's called the ESG movement. So these are big fund managers who... Make sure when they invest, they only invest in companies that have good policies when it comes to climate change, how they run their company or how they treat their people and their customers. ESG stands for Environment, Social and Governance. And it's interesting that one of the leading players in this movement, ESG investing, has been the New Zealand Superannuation Fund. Um, Started out uh, under its then uh, CEO, Adrian Orr, who's now, of course, the Reserve Bank governor, and has been carried on by Matt Winneray, the current CEO. And later in this podcast, we'll talk to Matt Winneray about how the New Zealand Superannuation Fund operates its ESG policy. Now, from a distance, you'd wonder, gee, they're looking after our money, and surely doing the right thing is also not going to produce the best return. Well, it turns out that's not the case, and that's one of the core tenets of ESG investing. It's that it's the most profitable thing to do in the long run, to invest in companies that actually care about the environment and their workers and society in general, that in the long run, things will out. That's how the New Zealand Superfund is operated, and it's actually done really well. In fact, in the last 12 months, the New Zealand Superfund produced a return of nearly 30%, and it saw its fund rise by $15 billion in value to nearly $60 billion, (laughs) to give you another idea. Over the last year, the New Zealand Superfund has actually paid tax back to the government of just on... $2.3 billion. At the same time, the government has contributed back to the fund $2.1 billion. So in effect, it was a net positive for the shareholder, which is, in this case, the New Zealand taxpayer. And over the long run, that's been the case with the New Zealand Superfund. So when you look since the fund's creation in 2003, the government, the taxpayer, has invested a net $12.4 billion. And the funders turned that into $60 billion. Good deal. So ESG investing can pay off. And the masters of the universe, the ones with the right longer-term view, can change capitalism from within. And we've seen that in the last uh, couple of weeks with big announcements from some of the world's biggest oil companies of huge investments in reducing their carbon emissions footprint. One of them is Chevron. And it's doing it in part because of fear fear that activist investment funds, with not that much money, can weaponize the influence of these ESG funds and force companies to do something they don't really want to. Chevron watched as ExxonMobil, its fellow oil giant, was effectively bullied by Engine Number no. One, a small activist fund, in conjunction with BlackRock and others, to force ExxonMobil to put a couple of directors on the board who are actually in favour of carbon emissions reductions. This is where it gets interesting. The masters of the universe now have to realise that those big pension fund managers actually want them to do the right thing. Also, many individual investors in KiwiSaver and the likes can now make those choices as well. We talked to Barry Coates, the former Green MP, who's now the CEO and founder of Mindful Money, which effectively uses a collection of tools for individual investors to work out who is exercising their power for good in the long run and who isn't. Because ultimately, transparency will be the light that forces many of these companies to do the right thing. And in many ways, we hope, it does a lot of the work that government should have done but can't when you have the masters of the universe from within looking to reform the ultimate unsustainability of this sort of big swinging, raw global capitalism, then you might actually see some real options for change. I'm Bernard Hickey, that's this week on When the Facts Change, a podcast on the Spinoff Network out weekly, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Well, kia ora and welcome to Matt Winare, the CEO of the New Zealand Superfund, the biggest investment fund in the country. Matt, thank you very much for coming on to When The Facts Change. Kia ora, Bernard. Why does the Superfund invest in a sustainable way?
0: Well, I think it's it's fundamental to our, our purpose. So we're here to smooth out the cost of national superannuation over the over the very long term. And so based on treasury's models we're going to continue to grow right through the end of this century. So we really care about the value of the investments that we have over the very long term and that what that makes you do is think about the impact of both Long-term societal trends and environmental trends on the value of those things, but also the impact of those investments on those long-term trends. Because we we really do care about the value of, of this portfolio over the very long term. So all of those things that might be externalities, you know, other people's problems. If if you were to just be investing for a short term, they they are all of our they are all of our issues over the long term. So so we have to think about sustainable investment. So
1: how did you get it past Treasury? Because they're pretty notorious for being tight and very focused on, you know, the best possible return for the shareholder in the short term?
0: It really is comes down to our mandate. We've got a clear mandate which is apply best practice portfolio management. Invest with a, a commercial purpose. Maximize return without undue risk. Avoid prejudice to New Zealand's reputation as a as a responsible member of the global community. And so, when we sit down and we think about that mandate, and, and think about our obligation to be best practice. What we did in the course of this last year was engage on a big discussion with our board to to really revise that responsible investment framework that we produced maybe 13 years ago back in 2006, 2007 and, and bring it forward to now and say, what do we need for this to work in the next 10 plus years. To do that, we looked at the practices around the world. We asked our stakeholders what was important to them. And we thought about how could we improve the ESG performance of this portfolio over the long term. And what you find is actually there's a lot of consistency between thinking about sustainability and long term returns. So we don't find that those things are in conflict. In fact, we've got an investment belief that these things are fundamental to long-term returns, including climate change, which is probably, you know, one of the biggest factors. Um, but really, it just becomes good sense. And what we found with that review is that really the best practice is moving from that responsible investment concept to sustainable finance. And the best way to, for me to explain that is it's the difference between thinking about what's the impact of all this stuff on me to what's the impact of me on all of these trends, And that might sound like a little bit of semantics, but it's quite an important shift. It's quite an important mind shift.
1: There's been a lot of um, publicity in the last couple of months, various regulatory inquiries into just how sustainable some of the funds and the companies are that say they're sustainable. Some closer looks of some funds have found that they've got great green credentials, but there's a Mm. lot of washing going on. How do you make sure you don't get suckered in by someone with a lovely green skin, so to speak?
0: <laughs> yeah, there's lots of there's lots of great marketing, and you know, and uh, investment managers around the world, I think, are some of the world's best marketers. They, they, you know, they will change their investment pitch from one meeting to the next to pick up whatever they heard in the last one. Um, look, what's important? What's important is um, is yeah, really critically is somebody doing what it says on the tin so so we saw a few years ago we saw a few examples of you know kiwi savers who had responsible investment policies, but really they were in the drawer and they hadn 't really applied them or implemented them properly and so and so when they looked inside the tin, there was some stuff in there that was you know not really consistent with what the label said. Different parts of the world go down different paths with this in the european union they 've been producing a big taxonomy and that taxonomy is several hundred pages long and it says this is what you need to be doing in order to call yourself this or if you're doing this then you can call yourself this. Other parts of the world are looking at that and thinking, you yeah, know, that that's that's helpful. So standards are, are useful, but you've already got the FMA you know focused on this they already they're already thinking about this I was having a chat to Rob Everett the other day and it's one of their big work focuses at the moment is making sure that people can have the trust and confidence
1: so what does success look like if you if you manage to move everything to sustainable finance does it mean lower inequality does it mean less large companies concentrating more wealth in fewer hands what does it mean
0: the global taxonomy is the sustainable development goals. So the sustainable development goals developed by the UN are seventeen different goals and that's a lot of goals. It's quite hard to hold them all in your head at the same time. They are focused on things like food security and water supply and climate and inequality and health. And so so that is one way that that you can determine success and you can determine it at a national level. It's something that our Treasury is trying to incorporate is is incorporating, not trying to, they are incorporating it into the living standards framework to say, how are we affecting these different capitals, natural capital, financial capital, social capital? You can measure it. One of the harder things with all of those sustainable development goals is sometimes the causation can be a little bit trickier. That's why sometimes you end up with a lot of focus on green because you've got metrics, you've got carbon emissions, you've got reserve levels, these types of things. And so you you can measure it. The trickier one, in the ESG space, is the S, because there are a lot more outcomes that you would like to affect, or impact, or improve. But there are they are harder to measure. There's not as much data about them. It's harder to show causation. So ultimately, the the measure of success is that we, as we as a globe, improve against those sustainable development goals. One of the big things for for impact investment or positive investment is this concept of intentionality and additionality. So it's not enough to say, well, I've invested in this portfolio and I sort of pick through it and I say, oh, well, here's a nice impact and, you know, this, this bit here is doing something about water or this bit here is doing something about waste management. It's about saying I am looking to create these impacts with my investments. That's the intentionality. And my investment has led to some change. That's the additionality. So those are quite important concepts in that in that impact investment, positive investment, which is sometimes conflated with the sustainable finance sort of more broadly.
1: One of the concerns people have had over the last 10, 15 years through the GFC and now COVID is that there has been this widening inequality and that some people believe the, the use of quantitative easing massively by central banks has pushed up the value of assets significantly and has actually worsened things, and that you know, there's something about capitalism and the way it's operating at the moment which is sort of self-destructive in the long run. Is there a fundamental problem here with capitalism that you can't really fix with, you know, moving to some of these ESG-type models?
0: Um, you're right, as you lower interest rates, then one of the consequences of that is that asset prices go up and not everybody has assets. So the people who have assets are wealthier than those who don't. One of the, I guess, I guess what you're trying to do, and I mentioned it before, that that concept of externalities. One of the things that what you're trying to do with a sustainable financial system is capture those externalities. And the classic externality is carbon. So someone that is burning some carbon and using up the global store of our carbon absorption capacity so the the ability of the atmosphere to absorb the stuff without getting too hot uh, is not having to pay for that. And so that's an externality. We all suffer from it. Sea levels rise, there's more acute and chronic weather changes, but, you know, we all suffer and someone hasn't had to pay and there are other externalities. And so the point of sustainable finance is to try and internalise those externalities. And you'll often hear economists say, well, we just have to have a carbon price. And if we've got a carbon price, then everything is solved. And then you go, why haven't we got a carbon price? Because that's quite hard. Um, and politically it's difficult and across countries it's very hard, but it's actually the, the way that would, would most clearly solve this. There's also an argument about whether even inequality is an externality and you'll get economists to have a, have a good, good old crack at that. But what sustainable finance is trying to do is incorporate that. So say, hey, when I'm making this investment or when this company is making this investment and there is a cost somewhere, how are we accounting for that cost? How are we accounting for that impact? that social impact or that environmental impact and and incorporate that into the investment decision uh, and when you've done that then you've you've changed the way those investment decisions have been made you've changed where capital gets allocated you've hopefully improved the outcome
1: can you give us yeah. an example of you know how a company has improved that outcome of less inequality and you know how do you
0: measure it yeah. So, you know, one one obvious example of that's probably companies that are are committing to paying a living wage and ensuring that those in the ecosystem, you know, the suppliers in particular, are paying a living wage. By by agreeing to pay a living wage, then you've 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 looked to address some of that inequality. Now, that's it's not massive, but it is it is a difference between what is mandated by the by the legislation and what is. Agreed as as a useful a suitable level for a living wage. You need to get data from the company. You need some assurance around that. So you'll often see you'll often see companies provide some assurance from you know maybe auditors or whoever has gone in to check and say yes, actually I've confirmed that those suppliers to you are paying a living wage and that all the people in your ecosystem are paying a living wage. That's a small example, but it's probably an immediate one. You see a, a bit of that. Just finally,
1: you've been around the global capital markets for a long time you know you're employed to be our expert if you like on those global markets do you think global capitalism can win back the confidence and the social license from voters in the in the west because at the moment it, there's a few people thinking this isn't going to last
0: yeah yeah can can those who have benefited from the from the structural bias actually, you know, correct the structural bias, right? Yeah, you know, it's a that's a massive philosophical question. There's a lot who are very focused on that nowadays. And this morning, I was on a on a call, uh, which is a thing called the Sustainable Markets Initiative, which is something actually that Prince Charles has has sponsored. But it's a it's a group of corporates more broadly, but a lot of financial services uh, companies that are working on problems like what's the right approach, or how how do you get an asset allocation that's consistent with net zero, or how do you scale transition funding, and what are the what are the impediments to that? I was on another call just before for this which was with the banking implementation group of the Sustainable Finance Forum and so that's the local bank saying how do we implement those recommendations from the roadmap of the Sustainable Finance Forum so there's a lot of people who are very focused on this because I think we all understand the implications of getting it wrong I think we have as a globe we've we've got it wrong we've had for for quite a long time so there's suddenly a a real impetus to to try and to try and change that. But can you do that? Well, you're gonna need some you're gonna need some help from governments, you're gonna need some sticks from government. You're gonna need the pressure from from all of the stakeholders. You see it, where consumers start to choose companies based on what their what their offering is and what their what their sustainability approach is. You see financiers start to do that. You see suppliers start to start measuring the downstream carbon emissions, you know, all of that sort of stuff. That pressure all changes decisions. And that's what it's all about. You've got to change somebody's decision in order to change the way the capital is allocated or the money is spent or where it's gone to get a better outcome.
1: Matt Winneray, the CEO of the NZ Superfund, which has just reported its results and um, produced a 29.6% return. Matt, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Bernard.
1: And there's Matt Winery, the man looking after $60 billion the taxpayer has given him control of. After the break, we'll talk to Barry Coates, who runs Mindful Money, a tool for individual investors to start making these ESG choices. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. welcome to barry Coates from mindful money to when the facts change now i'm curious about how to spot a greenwashing fund manager or a company which says all the right things but may not be doing the right thing tell us about what mindful money does to catch the baddies so
2: i've been uh, around ethical investing as as called, or responsible investing for for quite a long time and i've always wondered why the industry didn't set uh, some decent standards and why the the public has to be quite so confused about all the terminology and the lack of standards around uh, ethical investing. So uh, I set up Mindful Money with the idea that the best antidote to greenwashing is transparency. So Mindful Money goes through the painstaking process of being able to do the research and tell the public exactly what each fund invests in. What companies they invest in, not only what they directly invest in, but what they invest in via other funds. On our Mindful Money website, we've got the companies that they invest in for 310 KiwiSaver funds and about 420 retail investment funds. So so pretty much that's all the stuff that people can buy in New Zealand that's managed funds unless they want to go into wholesale investing.
1: What sort of things do you make sure are stripped out or not included in these funds? Every year we do a survey of the public and say, what are the kind of issues
2: that worry you? And what would you like to avoid in your investing? And people's views are fairly stable on that over the past three years that we've been doing these annual surveys. They don't want companies to violate human rights or test their products on animals or or have animal cruelty. They They don't want companies and gambling and uh, alcohol and pornography and, uh, and tobacco. Increasingly, they don't want fossil fuel companies. Uh, and certainly, they don't want weapons companies. Two years ago, we found $100 million of KiwiSaver funds going into companies making nuclear weapons. We went back to these and put some pressure on these companies and reduced to $52 million last year. This year, it's down to 15 million. When these people are outed, we can, we can get them to take stuff out of their portfolio. And most people have no idea. And this is the most common reaction we get. People look at the website and say, I was told this was an ethical fund. And they look on our website and say, oh, my God,
1: this is invested in all sorts of companies that I don't like. Are there various ways around this, though? Is there a new industry in disguising dodgy things by, you know, essentially outsourcing or contracting it out? Some of the funds
2: say, oh, well, yes, we invest in some bad companies, but we we engage with them and we try and improve their performance. And so what we're saying to, to those funds that's fine, but you've got, to, you've got to show some evidence that you're actually doing it. You can't sit there and claim that you're engaging with companies and just use a service to do proxy voting every, every time a resolution comes. That's, that's not sufficient to shift the companies. You know, and the, the third area, so, if you know, there are kind of three areas that, that you can use in terms of investing ethically. One is that avoiding stuff. Secondly is that engagement. And the third one, which is really the most interesting one, is you can actually invest in some good companies. And investing in some good companies or good investments is like the KiwiSaver funds that have invested in social housing in New Zealand. And now, for the first time, mainstream investment that people can invest in is spending some of their
1: money in projects that actually have a really good outcome. Is there a global standard um, coming together? Because a lot of the companies that the funds invest in – or the funds themselves are overseas and it's pretty easy for people to play one set of standards off against another. And before you know it, you've got this plethora of different rubber stamping bodies in the world and you're not quite sure um, which rubber is being stamped and whether it's really rubber.
2: Yeah. I mean, as opposed to other industries there has been really a lack of, of standards and a lack of disclosure. So for example, if you, if you want to get information on funds in New Zealand, they are forced to to disclose things to the to the government. Generally, those disclosures are endless amounts of stuff about about uh, returns and fees and who's the director and and you know what the director's been doing and so on. But they don't include disclosure on ethical issues other than kind of a short one line of saying, "Do you have an ethical policy?" So so um, in. And this is this has happened internationally that there is this has been a wild west, unregulated uh, area of investment. So, the FMA, the Financial Markets Authority, the regulator of the finance sector in New Zealand, uh, recently uh, did an inquiry and said there should be a process where the FMA can challenge misleading claims, and that's good except if you don't have any standards to say what's misleading, it's very hard to
1: understand what's misleading in comparison to. How do you make sure that you also incentivize some of these activist funds to get on the board or to get a stake in a company? How do you make sure you don't you know, punish the activists at the same time as punishing the baddies? You know, it's,
2: it's a good point. And this, that, that kind of engagement... Uh, is is exactly why that's a kind of a valid strategy for investing ethically. If you're a fund who does hold a company that that mightn't be the best company, but if you really engage and really push that company to to do better, that's a valid strategy for ethical investing. And that's kind of where the difficulty comes because most funds claim that they do
1: this. However, very few. So, to any degree? We're hearing a lot now from uh, these ESG investors, which uh, I understand are getting up towards a third of the total investment pool in the world, that as well as climate change, they're also interested in things like reducing inequality. The ratios between CEO salaries and worker salaries, improving employment diversity programs. What's the current thinking and action on uh, the the S part of the ESG?
2: One of the the influential things is in Australia, there's and the UK, there's legislation on modern slavery is called. So that's. Things like suppressing unions, or being unfair to workers, or exploiting workers, paying them below the minimum wage, etc., and those kind of standards are going to come into New Zealand. But one of the problems with the investment industry is you often get some over-promising. and if you really want to tackle these issues of, of you know, of climate change and and you know modern slavery and so on, actually, it requires government to really take the lead on it. And one of the the sort of big criticisms of the investment industry has been the pretense that these problems are going to be solved by the power of of large pools of capital. You know, basically, you know, large pools of capital can improve the performance of some companies, but generally only if it's in their financial interest. And, you know, people have to remember that this is no magic bullet for, for solving problems of climate change that actually, there we need far, far wider action to change the system. However, you know, individuals can do stuff through through their KiwiSaver, through their own funds, that will make a real difference through their investment. And, and
1: you know, everyone should do that. That's an important step forward. The cynic in me, which is quite big, thinks <laughs> having watched monopolists and uh, powerful interests avoid regulation or delay regulation or soften regulation by initially saying, oh, sorry, I didn't realise that was a problem. Oh, I'll look at fixing it. Or um, just give me a chance to solve myself and then we'll come back to it. Uh, And before you know it, 10 years has passed and nothing much has happened and they've managed to make their 10 years of profits and their three years of mega bonuses. Uh, how, How do you make sure that you're not being played Actually, when when you accept the assurances of global multinational capitalists that they really are interested in changing things for the better,
2: yeah, um, no, it's a it's a that level of of uh, scepticism I think is is entirely warranted uh, because you're dealing with large financial institutions that do not have uh, that are not guided by a moral compass. Primarily, they're, they're guided by financial interests. And, and you know, that's the way the system is set up to work. For most people, the best antidote is, is transparency and disclosure. You know, people have to be able to be provided with the information, which is verified, which actually will tell the
1: objective reality of what these financial players are doing. And one of, just finally, one of the really big trends in investing in the last decade or so has been the move towards index investing, essentially passive investing where an algorithm will work out which shares your fund needs to invest in depending on the size of the fund and what part of the world it is. And essentially it is... A passive investment, there's no human looking over the annual accounts and eyeballing the CEO and asking tough questions. They're just going, okay, this company is worth this much and my uh, investment style of passive investing says I need to invest in this company. And now we have a significant portion of the funds invested globally which is invested passively. How does the passive investment index investing industry make sure that it doesn't just um, become dumb money that's shoved into all the wrong places? I mean, the typical index investing
2: started out as you invest in the the Dow Jones index of, of all of the companies in the United States. Then when people started getting concerned about some ethical issues, what they did was they excluded a few companies. So they excluded some companies that might make cluster bombs or landmines or, or they might produce tobacco. So they constructed their, their indexes based on excluding those few things. Subsequently, that's gone further. And so what you're seeing now is some smarter index funds that will exclude a number of things that the public is concerned about. They might exclude weapons and fossil fuels and, and uh, gambling and, and some other things. However, you're still scattered in the portfolio. You're going to get some things that don't neatly fit into those sectors, like uh, companies that violate human rights. So they could be in any sector. And so the, the sort of the third wave of these ethical index funds is now starting to tilt towards companies that actually have higher standards. And there are some possibilities in the future that we're going to have some, some quite good passive funds that will enable that to happen. And you're even starting to get some passive fund managers who are doing that engagement with the Exxon Mobiles and the other companies
1: to try and, and improve their performance. I have a bunch of uh, libertarian friends who keep saying to me, sure, um, you can invest in this, um, this these green funds and the sustainable funds, but is there a fund manager who is an evil fund manager who invests in all the bad things? <laughs> Do you know if, if there are, in particular, fund managers who are like the, the anti-mindfuls who have, have realised there's a market opportunity to say, we only invest in, in cigarettes, nuclear power, weapons...
2: Uh, the good news for you is, is there are, Bernard, but you know a lot of them have gone out of business lately, uh, because really, I mean, really, this these issues are affecting the market. They're affecting the success of, of these companies. So, so you know, one of the things you only have to look at what's happened to fossil fuels. You know, at a time that the U.S. market has gone up by several multiples uh, over the past five years, fossil fuels have declined as as an index by 60%. So, if you've invested in fossil fuels over that period, then you've not only missed out on the big gains uh, in the market uh, as a whole, but you, you, your, your shares have actually lost value. Now, it's not as if the fund managers weren't warned. The fund managers have been warned for a long time, including like people people like Mark Carney, who was governor of the Bank of England, uh, our equivalent of the Reserve Bank, who said there's, a, there's this thing called climate risk. And you're going to be left with stranded assets of unusable oil and gas reserves or coal reserves. And sure enough, what's happened is that those oil and gas and coal companies have, have had their, their share values, their shareholder value, significantly decline in that period. Now, you know, if I'm a KiwiSaver investor and I'm sitting there with a whole lot of fossil fuels in my portfolio, I'd probably be going to my fund manager and say, didn't, didn't you get the memo? You know, weren't you told about this climate risk? I thought financial investing is all about managing risk. So, what part of that managing risk, that climate risk, did you not understand? And and I think you know, going going forward, we'll increasingly find that some of these anti-social risks, as well as anti-environmental risks, are um, you know chickens coming home to roost and and because the public is starting to get more aware of of issues of public health, of issues of the environment, issues of inequality, and and you know, I I don't think those issues are going to suddenly become
1: wildly popular. Barry Coates, the CEO and founder of Mindful Money, thank you very much for joining us on When the Facts Change. My pleasure, Billy. Thanks there to Barry Coates from Mindful Money, producing some tools for individual investors to sort out the goodies from the baddies. Thank you as well to Matt Winneray, the CEO of the New Zealand Superfund, our own master of the universe, looking after $60 billion of taxpayer money. This has been When the Facts Change on the spin-off podcast network, brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. And remember, It is a weekly podcast and we have a thread of juicy episodes that often work together in context. So download a lot of them and sign up to make sure you get the next one too. When the Facts, change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment?